Matthew 20. Now, as I've said a few times, I, um, I wish I'd made our passages shorter because uh, there's so much in each of the, the readings we have. And so this morning, I'm actually really going to get only mainly through the first half of this passage and we'll, um, we'll zoom in on the second part of the passage a bit more next week. I hope you recognise 5 verse 1 as the verse from which uh, we've taken the title for this series in Galatians. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And that verse tells us that there are two ways to live. As we saw last week, there's a way of freedom and there's a way of slavery. The way of freedom depends on the grace of the Father in Christ and it leads to life. While the way of slavery depends on works of the law and it leads to death. It's one or the other. There's no way to combine them or to blend them. The Galatians couldn't say, well, I'll go through the rite of circumcision, but in my heart I'll still believe in grace. Because the very act of getting circumcised was an act of commitment to be under the old covenant and to be obligated to keeping the whole law, not just the moral law, but all the ceremonial law and all the worship regulations that came with it. Now, circumcision was a good thing. It was given to the Jews in the Old Covenant, but now that the Old Covenant has been fulfilled, it too has become obsolete, along with all those worship regulations we saw last week, the the days, the months, the seasons and the years. The way of the Old Covenant has been replaced with the way of the New Covenant, which we see in verses 5 and 6 is the way of faith, hope and love. Now if you've done the authentic life, you'll be familiar with this. It begins with hope, the certain future we have because of who God is, his glory. Romans 5.2 says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And that idea is there in verse 5 of our reading, where he says, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. Our future is in the new heavens and the new earth, where righteousness will dwell, where the visible glory of God will fill the earth. Now, because this hope is certain... We're enabled now by the power of the Holy Spirit to entrust ourselves to our faithful Father. That's what faith is. It's trust in the person of the Father through trusting in the person of Jesus, his Son. This faith and hope, there in verse 5, then works its way out in love which we see in verse 6. Whether a person is circumcised or not actually makes no difference because the fuel that empowers us to walk in love both towards God and towards our neighbour isn't the law, but it's the hope that the faithful Father gives us. That's what the Bible means by running the race. Faith in the promises of God enable us to step forward in acts of love. 
towards God and acts of love towards our neighbour, towards our goal of God's glory displayed in Jesus. And we're told to keep our eyes fixed on that goal, on the hope that we have if we're to then run this race with endurance. Hebrews 12, 1-2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those witnesses are people in the past who have demonstrated faith, faith in the promises of God. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings, clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the race that the Galatians began running when they heard the gospel. But then what happened? Someone stepped in front of them, cut them off, caused them to stumble, and then they set off in a different direction. They've been told that the way of faith, hope and love was the wrong way and it wouldn't get them to the finishing line and that the, the, the true way is the way of law. Now, you need to know that if you've taken the path of law, while it will never actually get you to that goal of God's glory, God's grace means that as long as you are still in this life, it's never too late to be taken off the path of law and returned to that path of faith, hope and love. The Father reveals and confronts our legalism not to condemn us, but to discipline us. He will ultimately never let any of his adopted children stay on the wrong path. He may allow us to remain there for a season, but he does it to teach us about the glories of his grace and his goodness in bringing us back to the right path in his time. Maybe you've been experiencing that loving discipline as we've been going through the book of Galatians. Paul wrote this letter not because he thought the Galatians were a lost cause, otherwise why bother? It's because he had a confidence in the Lord that he would restore them to their freedom in grace. And we know from the ongoing story in the book of Acts, that's exactly what God did for them. Now Paul has one more thing to say in his argument against this false gospel of law. And as we saw last week, it's something that exposes the false motives of these teachers. They wanted to avoid persecution and win the approval of men. That was the big issue, wasn't it, with Peter. He wanted to get the approval of these teachers who came because he was fearful of uh, what other people thought. So verse 11 is a hypothetical scenario. Paul knows that if he went along with these men and he himself began preaching circumcision, it would solve a problem for him. It would solve the problem of persecution. 
but it would also remove the offence of the cross. What is it that's so offensive about the cross of Christ? It's not so much the historical event of a man being crucified. It's only in recent times that people have found the violent aspect of Jesus' death uh, offensive and ironically it's being theologians in the church, not the world, that's found it offensive. Back in 2003, uh, an English Christian leader wrote a book in which he claimed that the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, that Jesus atoned for our sins by by being our substitute, by taking the penalty of death in our place, He said, that's a form of cosmic child abuse. He said it makes God himself out to be violent and vindictive. Instead, he said, no, Jesus' death, that was entirely at the hands of human beings. And God simply allowed it to happen to show us how far he is prepared to go to identify with us in our unjust suffering. And also as a model for us to follow so that we too can begin to overturn the unjust and oppressive systems of this world. Now since then a lot of people have picked up on this caricature. And what I hear a lot of uh, these people saying is that this approach to Jesus' cross makes Jesus so much more attractive to non-believers because it presents to them the image of a non-violent, caring God who accepts them just the way they are. In other words, they're saying we need an interpretation of Jesus' death that sounds more relevant, more acceptable to the world because people generally don't like the idea of a God who's angry at sinners. So give them an image of a nice, inclusive, accepting God and, they say, by doing that we'll save Christianity from its rapid decline. Now there's so much sad irony in that. Christianity has been declining in the West in terms of numbers of people attending church or actively um, expressing, practicing the Christian faith. And it's been happening since the beginning of the 20th century, so well over a 100 years. A key reason, though, behind that decline was the rise at the end of the 19th century of progressive theology. Progressive theology downplays the inspiration of the Bible. It discredits the gospel accounts, saying we can't be sure if they're accurate or not. And it removes the ideas of sin and judgment, all in the name of trying to make Christianity sound relevant to a modern audience. But we have the testimony of a hundred years of history to show us that getting rid of the idea of the cross being God's judgment on sin doesn't actually make Christianity more attractive. It doesn't result in people staying in the church or coming into the church. In fact, it's done the opposite. I think it's because the reality is 
People in general have no problem with the idea of a God of justice or of God being angry at injustice. Just think of the voices that are loudest in our society today and what is it they're calling for? Justice. Justice for asylum seekers, justice for victims of abuse, justice for the poor, justice for different genders and sexualities, justice for the Ukrainians, and we could go on and on. Those who call for justice, they have no problem with the Bible passages that speak of God's anger against evil people and oppressors. They have no problem with his call to do justice and to love mercy. Those who espouse the idea that God is so loving that he surely would never be angry, would never send people to hell, they face a dilemma. If they're asked, does your view then mean that people like Hitler, Pol Pot, serial killers, pedophiles, rapists, will they all be there in heaven with us good people? And many atheists reject the idea of God on the basis that suffering in the world, if there was a God, would make God unjust. So whatever our view of God, we all want him to be just. So the offence of the cross isn't that it's about a just God dealing with sin and evil. And nor is it the fact that Jesus' death was violent. I've never heard anyone, maybe you have, but I've never heard anyone say they're offended by the observance of Easter in which we portray Jesus on the cross, dying a violent death. What's offensive about the cross? It's not so much what it says about the Father or Jesus, but it's what it says about us. The cross tells us that we cannot make ourselves righteous. The most offensive thing about the cross is that it reveals grace. Remember 2 verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The message of grace is offensive to us because it robs us of our self-sufficiency. It removes any way in which we can at least get some glory for what we've achieved. Grace, as the Bible defines it, isn't God just feeling kindly towards us, nor is it something that we receive because we're not quite as bad as all those other people who've done all those horrible things. Grace isn't God deciding to act as if sin didn't happen or doesn't matter. Grace begins when God looks at our sin and he sees that it deserves the judgment of death, regardless of whether our assessment of our sins is that they're great or small. The heart of sin is idolatry, and idolatry can express itself in very respectable ways. So our assessment of our sin is not what matters. It's God's assessment. Grace is when God sees this, and he takes his wrath against our sin 
and he turns it away from us and directs it towards his perfect, righteous and holy son who's willingly come to bear that judgment in our place. Grace isn't God overturning his justice, but it's him ensuring that his justice is fully carried out in such a way that sinners are saved instead of destroyed. In the cross, Jesus is given justice so that we may be given mercy. So it leaves us with empty hands as far as anything that we can contribute. And that's what's so offensive to anyone who thinks at least I should or could make some small contribution. All of that is the point of verse 11. If Paul was to water down the gospel by adding in circumcision and then the whole law that came with that, he might make his life a bit easier by avoiding persecution, but at what cost? He'd essentially be emptying the cross of its power because the grace that the cross displays that's so offensive to those who reject it is also what makes the cross the power of God to save those who believe. Someone who attended the authentic life, uh, who comes from a non-Christian religious background, uh, expressed, uh, I hope I'm getting this accurate, how over at least 20 years of uh, having interactions with Christians, no one had ever shared so clearly what the death of Jesus meant and how it shows that Jesus, not our good works, are the only way to know the true and living God. Now, I can only guess, but I suspect that those Christians were tiptoeing around this person, not wanting to offend them, not wanting to get into trouble for preaching the gospel too strongly. Maybe they reasoned, I'll preach the gospel not by words, but by the example of my life, which is an approach that's actually never presented in the scriptures. Our lives are to adorn the gospel in that the way we live should be consistent with the message we preach. But you can't adorn by your life something that you've never spoken with your mouth. You know, if we leave it up to just our good works alone to testify, then the message we'll be giving is actually the false gospel of works. Because it says, I'm a good person, instead of... I live by grace. If we proclaim the gospel of grace, the gospel of salvation that comes through Christ alone, then our non-believing workmates and friends and neighbours and family members, they'll be watching us, but not to see how many good things we do, but to see how dependent upon grace we are, both when we do good and when we fail miserably. We've been seeing how perplexed Paul is at how the Galatians were so quickly and readily being led astray by this false gospel of works. But he's not angry at them. His anger is directed towards these legalistic false teachers. And we see this indignation expressed quite bluntly in verse 12. Uh, Emasculate is a politically correct translation of a word that means castrate 
be made a eunuch. He's saying those who are forcing you to take on the whole law by telling you to get circumcised should themselves not merely be circumcised but castrated. Now if that offends you, then good. Paul is deliberately being offensive to highlight how offensive the false gospel is to God. But he's doing more than just using a shock factor to make his point. Remember what he said earlier about those who rely on works of the law. They are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And then a few verses after this, what Christ has done to deal with that curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What was the blessing of Abraham? If you know the story, it was that he and his descendants would be fruitful, that they would become as numerous as the stars in the sky. God's blessing is displayed in fruitfulness, which is why as soon as God created human beings, he blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The blessing of God upon humanity was expressed in being fruitful and ruling over a creation that itself was blessed with fruitfulness in the abundance of the the plant life and the animal life. The curse that came as a result of sin touched directly on this fruitfulness. For the woman, her fruitfulness would be filled with pain in childbearing. For the man, his fruitfulness would be filled with toil as the ground no longer produced in abundance. So throughout the Old Testament, we see God's uh, judgment repeatedly upon the wicked expressed as the removal of fruitfulness, the cutting off of their descendants through infertility or through the death of their children. Remember the great evil that the Canaanites were practicing that made their destruction by the Israelites an act of God's judgment? That embraced child sacrifice. That arrogantly taken on something that was pronounced as a curse and a judgment by God and they'd made it into an act of worship to appease their gods. By sacrificing their children and cutting off the descendants that could have come from them, they were showing themselves to be under this curse. But for those who know that Christ, by becoming a curse for us, has done away with that curse and has restored the blessing of God... We also then know this renewed promise of faithfulness. And we saw that in 4 verse 27. 
For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labour. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So this new fruitfulness in the new covenant is seen not necessarily by the birth of more children, although Christians have done a great job over history of having lots and lots of children. But it's in the way that the Spirit is at work through the proclamation of the gospel to bring people into his family by adoption as sons. So verse 12, in the light of all of that background, isn't Paul just wishing suffering on these people? But that they might know the full extent of the implications of their false gospel. If they insist on relying on the old covenant, on circumcision and the law, they should be willing also to receive the old covenant curse of unfruitfulness that comes to anyone who fails to keep the law. Now I hope we're all convinced by now that salvation is by grace alone, not by works. Grace alone can bring us into true freedom in Christ. But the big question from that is, well, what then does a life that's set free by Christ actually look like? And that's where the rest of the letter goes. And as I said, uh, we won't have time to go into detail into these following verses, but we will look at them more next week. But I want to say a few things. One of the objections to the doctrine of grace alone is that it will lead to libertarianism, to immorality. And that's the objection that's addressed uh, there in verse uh, 11, sorry, 13. Historically, those who have believed and preached grace have been faced with this criticism. It's the criticism that Paul got from the circumcision group in Galatia. It's the criticism that Augustine got from Pelagius in the 5th century. It's the criticism that the Protestant reformers got from the Roman Catholic Church in the Reformation. And it's still a criticism today of anyone who believes in the absolute sovereignty of God's grace in our salvation. And the criticism stems from a misunderstanding of the Christian's relationship to the law. By saying that the law has been fulfilled in Christ and that the written code has been made obsolete, it's not saying that the law has been abolished. Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfil it. So living by grace doesn't mean we've discarded the law and we just tear that bit out of our Bibles. What it means is that our relationship to the law has changed. Our freedom in grace means we're no longer a slave trying to obey the letter of the law, but that we are free sons who obey the spirit of the law that's been written on our hearts. The spirit of the law, which is love. 
So God's law remains precisely because it's God's law. It's the expression of his own character and he never changes. The law was already in place before it turned up in written form because God has always been there. We see it from the very beginning when he gave a command to Adam. The law in its written form was given on tablets of stone because of sin, but in its unwritten form, it's always been there in the heart of God. If Paul was doing the... Sorry, it's not there. If Paul was doing away... Oh, there it is. If Paul was doing away with the law altogether, he wouldn't have written verse 14. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. If he was discarding the law together, why would he encourage the Galatians to think about fulfilling the law by loving their neighbour? Some people think that living under grace means we no longer need to hear any commands from God. That will naturally, instinctively do what's right without any need of instruction. Well, that will be true in the new creation when we're finally free from the presence of sin and the weakness of our flesh as we live in resurrected bodies clothed in immortality. But it's not the case in this in-between time when we still battle with sin. As long as temptations to sin come, we still need to hear the commands of God that tell us to flee from sin and to strive for righteousness. Just read the New Testament. It's full of commands. So what's the difference then between that and the Old Covenant? Well, it's that in Christ, we approach the commands of God in the freedom and the power of the Spirit. See Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, in verses 1 to 3, that's the gospel of grace. The Spirit has applied all that Christ has done and has set us free from the law's condemnation that leads to death. So by grace our sin is forgiven. But see how the other part of the Spirit's work in verse 4 is to ensure that the law is fulfilled not by us but in us. See the difference between by and in is that the first is us doing it ourselves in our own strength, by us. The second is Christ doing it in us, by the power of his spirit. So grace has caused our relationship to the law to change. We're no longer under the law in the sense that it hangs over our heads with its demands of its perfection and its condemnation for our failure to reach that perfection. Instead, the law has become a foundation on which we stand. It's become instruction. It's a light for our path and a lamp for our feet. It shows the goodness of this way of 
faith, hope and love. Because of grace, we no longer need to obey out of fear of punishment, but in the delight and joy of seeing the goodness of the Father's will for us. That's why the criticism that preaching and believing grace will lead to immorality doesn't hold water. Grace doesn't abolish God's law, but it reorients our hearts towards him so that we love his law and we delight to do his will. Grace, not legalism, is what will lead to this true spirit-led obedience that's not from the letter but from the heart. And that's what we'll look at more in our next message next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again, as we have been uh, each week, for your abundant, free, lavish grace that you have poured upon us in your Son, Jesus. Thank you for the glorious freedom that we have now in the power of the Spirit to, to love you, to love our neighbour, uh, to uh, not be anxious about the fear of death or of judgment. Uh, thank you that Christ in his death and his resurrection has taken that all away and by faith alone in him we can know that freedom. Thank you, Father, that your spirit is at work in us and that he is able to give us that gift of faith. And uh, I ask that for everyone here in this place, uh, that we all might uh, truly believe uh, in the living God and in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.